Ladies and gentlemen, it's that time again, 1 p.m. on Saturday, and this is The Elephant in the Room here on WJAS 1320 AM. I'm your host, Sam DeMarco, as always, joined by my executive director, John Schneider, and our producer, Dazzling Daryl Grandy. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. I think we have a great show for you today. Now, hey, an hour goes fast, particularly as we get closer and we start talking about politics and elections. And right now we're in the middle of, while it's municipal elections this year, uh, petition signing season. So everybody's out there, they're working hard and they're, you know, trying to get their signatures so that they can get on the ballot this year. And uh, so I know a lot of folks are interested in what's happening. And uh, so are we. That's happening in Harrisburg. And we are so fortunate to be joined today by a friend of the show and one of our state representatives, Jason Ortitai, state representative in the 46th legislative district. So, uh, Jason, welcome to the show. Thanks, Sam. It's, it's a pleasure to be back. I enjoyed my, my first run, so I'm, I'm happy to be back for, for round two and hopefully a lot more rounds in the future. Oh, I, hey, we hope so. I mean, you, you, you did a great job. And what I like about having you on the show, Jason, is we're not just talking politics. You're educating the listeners. You know, you're telling them about what's happening and why and you know, you're unique in that you sit on the appropriations committee or you did previously. I don't know what's going to happen in this uh, new legislative session. And that's another great reason to have you on the show. Well, yeah, especially uh, this, the beginning of this session has been certainly uh, very eventful. Uh, it's been unique to the point where uh, we're halfway through February. We don't have committee assignments. We don't have House rules. No bills can be introduced. Uh, so a lot of people are probably wondering what the House is doing. I've been wondering the same thing, trying to work behind the scenes with the speaker's uh, work group to get rules together, bipartisan rules, so we can function. Um, and hopefully at some point next week we'll be back in regular session. But this week we're trying to wrap up um, special session and, and hopefully get ready to actually get organized and get to the people's business. Well, I mean, you know, I know that folks are looking at this, and many folks don't realize the good work that the people in the legislature do. But I can tell you that, you know, People are starting to get antsy here, being that, uh, you know, after the 2022 election, the last session ended at the end of November. And here it is, it's almost March, you know, and we're not really able to move forward with anything uh, because it's being held up by the uh, the speaker and, you know, for whatever reasons, you know, yeah, they put it, forth. It, you know, we haven't really been in session since we were sworn in on January 3rd. And I mean... I won't I won't reiterate the entire day of January 3rd, but, you know, a Democrat was elected speaker. He pledged to be independent and not caucus with anyone. And he hasn't caucus with anyone. But uh, in doing so, he hasn't brought us back. Um, he wanted fair rules in order to do that. And coincidentally, it was after the special elections and which allow the Democrats to take back the majority in the House. And that's currently where we sit. I'm not saying he did that on purpose, but it certainly seems like uh, that was the intent behind forming the speaker's work, working group to, to get rules. We, we all went into it, at least on the Republican side, myself, uh, Representative Gatos and Representative Schemmel, thinking, hey, let's get rules done, get back to the floor so Republicans can get some things done. Um, look, we, we were ready to come back, run the statute of limitations bill uh, for the speaker. Uh, we also wanted to take a crack at regulatory reform and, of course, voter ID. We wanted to, to go after all that in the constitutional amendment. Uh, which were all included in Senate Bill 1, which Senate the, the Senate sent to us in regular session, not special session. So SB 1 is sitting here at the House waiting for us to organize so it can go into a committee. Um, you know, we had talked for weeks about coming back to the floor, but 
we didn't get back until uh, earlier this week on Tuesday, and we're scheduled to be here through uh, through Friday. And by the time the listeners hear this, we'll probably be wrapped up in special session and ready to come back on the following Monday. Well, it's going to be interesting, and we're going to see what happens. Uh, you know, I mean, uh, when we go back and we talk a little bit about January 3rd, I, I for one, understand what happened and why, okay? And, uh, you know, Republicans voted for a Democrat to be speaker as a compromise candidate because they wanted to be able to take and pass legislation left over from the previous session in order to get some constitutional amendments on the ballot. And I, my understanding was that that commitment was made, and that was one of the reasons why they voted for him. And then after that, uh, you know, all of a sudden we're out of session, not to come back until the special elections have been held. And, you know, while we in Allegheny County did our best and fought in those special elections, I've seen people across Twitter and elsewhere on the Democratic side of the House, I mean, they're like running around like thinking that all of a sudden the earth has moved and, you know, it's all behind them. And it's in, in the reality, those districts were so heavily Democratic you know, that it was going to be an almost impossible task for our folks in the first place. I mean, when I look at uh, House District 34, that was the district, the sheet vacated by Summer Lee. That is six to one uh, Democrat to Republican. Six to one. Okay. And folks, what that means is, if you have, don't understand, it means for every single Republican in that district, there are six Democrats. You know, uh, House District 35 is three to one. So for every Republican in that district, there are three Democrats. And for House District 32, it's a little over two and a half to one. So those were always heavy lifts, you know, for our candidates. And when the Democrats took and set the special election date for February 7th, there were a couple things that they did that took and disadvantaged us. One of them was that by picking February 7th, That fell under the law with the mail-in ballots so that automatically everyone that had voted by mail last year and 85% of those ballots were submitted by Democrats in Allegheny County were automatically mailed a ballot. Didn't have to request a new one for the election. It was automatically mailed to them. Also, by setting the election that date so quickly, it didn't really give any of the prospective candidates who'd come out of the conferee process an opportunity to really go out there and campaign. So, uh, you know, our guys did the best they could under this very difficult circumstances, you know, but the Democrats that are out there, you know, singing and, you know, I saw, uh, you know, the uh, majority leader, Clinton, you know, folks talking about this. I was just shaking my head. It's like, really? I mean, they have a one seat majority and these folks act like, uh, I don't know, like they were elected king for a day. So. You know, I'm hoping that you guys are going to be able to work together and get some things done. But, you know, I'm concerned. Yeah, look, we're not off to a good start there in, in working together. And, you know, if this week has proved anything, it's that things are still as as, uh, as troublesome as they have been in the past, except now there's a, a new majority and they're trying to figure things out while we're trying to figure things out being in the minority. Well, look, we've got our work cut out for us. And, you know, Sam, you, you and your crew did a great job in those specials. Um, and for the people out there, I don't. Republicans never held any of those seats. Um, no, never. We didn't even field candidates. I don't think there's ever been a Republican, you know, as the representative in House District 34. Or if they have, we're going back a hundred years or something. I, you know, 
Yeah, I mean, okay, look, we, we all knew that the, the outlook on those special elections were really tough, and they were all long shots to begin with. But it doesn't mean you don't try. And like I said, I, I, commend, I commend you and your team for, for trying and the three guys who are willing to put their names on the ballot. It's not easy. Everyone thinks, oh, you just put your name on the ballot, and, you know, in those, those elections you just show up. No, I mean, you have to go out and campaign, knock doors, <laughs> you know, hand out cards, put up signs. Like, it's more. It's more than that. I mean, then you have to deal with the press. I mean, it, it, it's a lot of work. Those three gentlemen, you know, they should give themselves a pat on the back. They did a great job in an impossible situation. Oh, absolutely. And hey, uh, folks, want to give a shout out again to Clayton Walker, Don Nevels, and Robert Pagani, who were our candidates. Now it's District 32, 35, and 34 this past uh, special election season. So, so here we are, Jason. Um, the Senate, they sent the House a package of bills, SB1, that had the three constitutional amendments in it, one for regulation, one for voter ID, and one for the speaker's pet issue, which is uh, fixing the mistake that the Wolf administration and the uh, attorney general's office made last last year or two years ago in not taking and putting this, uh, getting it on the ballot, okay, for referendum to extend the statute of limitations for victims of child sexual abuse. So, here you have you have a bill sent over, and now the speaker, with a one seat majority, has decided that he's going to n- not pass that. He's going to do his own thing. Wants to separate it, and then wants you guys to have the special session, pass it, which you did. And then I, I don't know I don't I don't know how he thinks that all of a sudden he's going to send that to the Senate, and then they're just going to roll over and pass that. You know when he didn't give any consideration to the bill that they sent over to him. Yeah, the Senate has been very clear that they're not interested in, look, in, in their mind, they've run statute of limitations and they're not going to do it again. Yep. Um, and that, from what I understand, has been communicated to the Speaker. He's aware of that, uh, but he's still going down this road of running running them in special session and running them in regular session, running them alone. Um, you know, I know that I had personally threw some options out there about running it in coordination with the voter ID constitutional amendment and then some enabling legislation um, you know, at the time he was receptive of it. He had talked about it. He had said that he wanted to get voter ID done um, with the statute of limitations. You know, I took him at his word. There's still time to do that next week. Mm-hmm. Um, unfortunately, he's not the majority leader, so he doesn't get to control the schedule. I just find it hard to believe that the House Democrats would ever call up a voter ID vote. Look, we can file amendments when it comes up in regular session. That, I mean, and that's probably what we'll what we'll look to do. But you know, at the time when we're sitting there behind the scenes trying to negotiate rules, you know, that was something I kept throwing out there. Like, listen, if we don't get back in before the specials while the Republicans have the majority, you know, we're, we're done. I don't know what we're doing here because you guys can pass any rules you want because you have the votes to do it. Mm-hmm. So that's why we're in this situation. You know, I've had a few conversations with uh, Senator Ward and Senator Pittman. Uh, they've basically said the same thing to me that, look, we, we passed statute of limitations. You have it in the House. Pass it. Send it back. Pass it. Send it to wherever it needs to go and um and that'll be it look we've done our work and they have and to to their credit they've taken up statute of limitations that to correct governor wolf's error um with their their secretary of state and Mm -hmm. you know i I had a resolution and and a bill to investigate that and we got to the bottom of it Uh, a person had resigned Uh, i don't necessarily agree that that person was the one who was at fault but someone took responsibility which needed to happen uh, it should have been the governor, but he didn't. And here we are. Like, we, here we are for a third year, or a third session in a row, trying to pass the same thing over and over again. Uh, it should be simple. It shouldn't be hard, but this is where we're at. Well, it is February, you know, and, and you do have Groundhog Day in February. And, uh, <laughs> but, but, you know, hey, that was at the beginning of the month. 
<clears throat> not here at the end of the month. And, and, and folks, uh, our listeners out there, I want them to know, when we're talking about this and we're talking about problems in Harrisburg, people like Jason or Titi are not part of the problem. You know, Jason, I want to commend you for all the work you did in trying to work on this uh, bipartisan committee, you know, to try to work with the speaker to uh, get these roles in place, get, bring these folks back and the whole bit. It's just, I don't know if he felt pressure from his caucus or whatever it was, <clears throat> but he, you know, decided that he was just going to up and go on a listening tour, which to me was nothing more than delaying everything. Because I believe on the listening tour, the things that I read about that folks had expressed an interest in was that they wanted to see more bipartisanship, and they wanted to see more things get done. And that's the ap- opposite. And, and they wanted, basically, it was minority protections to make sure the minority party gets a say. So the, and, I, and I told him that. I said, you know, after this first meeting that we held at Carnegie Mellon, I said, I wouldn't be surprised if you, if you canceled this, because these are actually going in favor of the Republican Party and the minority. And they ended up scheduling two more. We ended up going to uh, Wilkesboro State College in Philadelphia, and every one of them basically all said the same thing. So I'm like, hey, you know, have at it. I mean, they're all going to stay the same. Uh, and I had sat down with the speaker and the parliamentarian, and I had kind of, you know, developed some rules that I thought were fair after listening to NCLL and to how some other states function. Um, and they don't quite function the same way that Pennsylvania does with the partisanship mm-hmm. uh, that we've had here. But I thought they were some good ideas, and I thought they were fair. So I took it to the speaker and presented it to him. And, you know, earlier today I saw some ideas that he's floating out there that he's looking to present next week. And, you know, I'm happy to see that some of my uh, suggestions were included in that. Uh, I'm not naive. I don't believe all of my rules would be included in that. <laughs> That's just the nature of the beast. But, you know, I, I, I tend to think from what I've seen so far that he might be on the right track. I wish this would have come three weeks ago, but, you know, the, the, that didn't happen. But hopefully we get there. And even though we're in the minority for the time being, everyone kind of expects the House to ping pong back and forth over the next two years. There's, I think, six Democrats running for other elected offices. So the odds of them losing a few members is pretty high. Uh, I don't I'm not aware of any Republicans. And there's always members who leave, retire, resign, possibly get arrested, you know, that just never really finish the term. So Mm -hmm. there's a chance for to be at 101. The Republicans could have the majority for several months. It really it really depends. I mean, and that's why I thought, hey, let's do like a real true power sharing agreement where you know, when the Democrats have the numbers, they're in control. Republicans have the numbers, they're in control. No need to play these games about, oh, it's, the majority is who won the last election and that has the numbers. You know, you know, it, it, it's, it's that gamesmanship that turns everybody off because then nothing gets done. And you're constantly pulling people on and off of committees to adjust to who's in the majority. And I, I always say this, this is my favorite analogy, is at any time the majority flips, it's like an all-out steel cage wrestling match. And we don't need that here. The committees don't need that, and the people of Pennsylvania don't want that either. Like, we really need to get back to work. We've already pretty much skipped out of two months' worth of work already. So we're going to have two more weeks of session, and then we're going to be out for six more weeks after the governor's budget address for budget hearing. So we really need to get something done because odds are nothing is going to happen until the end of April or May. And at that point, we've already gone through four months of 2023, and nothing has been accomplished in the House. Right. And, and you know, like, like I said, uh, um I want to commend you. You're doing what you can, you know, to be a positive force up there in Harrisburg. And, uh, you know, hopefully we'll be able to, to get move things forward. I, I know one of the things that's been disappointing to me is after the election, in my other role here is the chairman of the Republican Committee of Allegheny County. My job is to put up candidates and to try to run and, and win the seats so that we can control the majority so that we can set the agenda. Okay. But, you know, unfortunately, things didn't go our way. You know, on election night, 
combination of a number of factors, you know, not the least of which was redistricting, you know, you know, and other issues. But Governor Shapiro, when he was on the campaign trail, was saying a lot of things that were interesting to Republicans. He talked about wanting to cut or accelerate the cut reduction of the net corporate income tax. He talked about uh, open for school choice in some ways for uh, students in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. There were a number of things that he talked about. He talked about reducing regulation and, and, and in, increasing the speed at which permits and things like that are issued. So there were a lot of things he talked about. <clears throat> so, you know, even though things didn't go the way of the Republicans here in the House this last election, I was hoping that at least for the benefit of the people of Pennsylvania and all of us out there, that we would be able to get some things done, you know, this year that would benefit at least the folks in Pennsylvania. And my gosh, he's not off to a great start either. You know, last week, he's out there talking about he wants you guys to send him a bill that takes and eliminates capital punishment in the same week that we're burying a police officer that was killed in McKeesport and then a Temple University officer was then killed out there in Philadelphia. <clears throat> then while he's telling you that he wants to take and eliminate capital punishment while these, you know, heinous crimes are being committed, okay, he's out there talking about how he's going to protect abortion and the right to abortion in the state of Pennsylvania. So life is so important, right, that we have to keep convicted murderers alive, but yet we can kill babies, all right? Then he follows that up by we find out that he took a uh, trip on the taxpayer's dime out to the Super Bowl there. And here's a guy that raised over $61 million in his campaign. He certainly has the money to pay for his own ticket. So he's not off to a great start. And now we're having problems in the house as well. I don't know, Jason. I mean, you know, what do you want to tell our listeners to give them hope that some folks in Harrisburg can get some things together and be able to move forward a positive agenda, hopefully for the benefit of the people of Pennsylvania? And that's the thing. I do think at some point the house is going to, is going to get set up. The issue is, is we're just not going to get down to the people's business until the end of April. The governor is going to give his budget address on March 7th, which is in a, here in a couple of weeks. And because he's new, he, he, usually that happens the first or second week of February. But because he's new, he, get an extra, he gets an extra month to prepare his first budget address with the joint session with the House and the Senate. Look, Josh is he's not dumb. He knows that he needs to get things done. And I'm sure everyone knows that he more than likely has higher aspirations than where he's at now. Mm -hmm. And he needs to have a proven track record. So my guess is, is that things are going to start up. They're just going to start up later than normal, probably in May and June. And you're going to see a whole lot of things go in that budget. So I would pay particular attention at what gets stuffed in the code bills. you know, things that kind of like maybe aren't regular bills, but get kind of hidden in there. I mean, we're probably working on a budget through July because, quite honestly, in the House, I'm not quite sure how that's all going to work right now. Traditionally, you know, we've always had a seat at the table, the House Republicans. I'm mm -hmm. not so sure that we will this time around. But the Senate Republicans, I'm sure, are working with the governor. I just I don't expect a lot to get done in the next five or six months here before uh, before the summer recess. But, you know, stranger things have happened around here. We'll see where they go. But, you know, we're going to we're going to keep fighting for the people out there. We might be in the minority, but we're, look, we're going to get some wins here and there. Uh, we're not going to win all the time. But, you know, we need to get back out there, in particular in Allegheny County. We need to recruit some great candidates so we can take the majority back next year. Mm -hmm. Great messaging. Like we, we just we need people to stand up. We need people to stand up who believe in the Republican Party, who believe in their communities, who want to make their communities a better place. You want to make Pennsylvania a great place to live uh, and improve it. We need those people to stand up now because running for office and running for state representative is a full-time job, and it takes a lot of effort. Well, Jason, 
I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, to, to your point there, and we're working on that, and you're absolutely right, okay? For the people, again, that I have to continue to reinforce this, for the people that think Allegheny County went blue, it did not go blue. You know, I've been on a lot of calls. We've analyzed and studied a lot of data, and, and unfortunately, the facts are clear. And what those facts are is that the Democrat Party did a much better job getting their low-propensity voters to the polls, you know, on Election Day than we did. And that's because they used the 50 days of early voting— to get their folks to sign up and vote by mail, and then election day. And we can't compete if we give them 50 days of early voting, and then we try to match it in 13 hours on election day. So You're you're absolutely right, Sam. Look, I know a lot of Republicans out there don't like mail-in voting and they want it to go away, but look, it's not going away anytime soon. And why should we continue to fight these elections with one arm time behind our back? We need to embrace it. We need to utilize it. And we need to go out there. I mean, look at the special elections. I think every one of the Democrats had over 5,000 mail-in ballots already banked by Election Day. Two of the three districts did. Yes, absolutely. They had over 5,000 while our folks were in the three to 400 range. Yeah. I mean, th- look, that's got to change. I, I Look, we want our pe- we want our Republicans to show up. But these the Democrats have done a fantastic job in getting their one, their one or two out of four voters to vote by mail now. It's so much easier. And we need to do the same thing with our Republicans. We need our Republicans to stand up and vote, whether they're voting in person or by mail. It doesn't matter anymore. Well, we need to take advantage of this. Exactly. And, you know, you talked about getting voters to show up. I mean, hey, by getting your vote in and counted, that is showing up. Okay, so you can there's, you can early vote in Pennsylvania two ways. You can go down to the county office and vote over the counter there at the elections division. Go in, show your ID, tell them who you are. They'll give you a ballot. This is up 50 days before an election. They'll give you the ballot for your district. You complete it, put it in the envelope, close it up in the second envelope, and sign and date it. You give it to them, and then you can walk away, and you know that your vote is then going to count. Okay, so if you you can do it that way, if you want to do it in person. Or the other option is on election day, or you can vote by mail. And if you vote by mail, you eliminate long lines at the polls. You eliminate potential problems like a scanner being broken or someone running out of ballots. You eliminate, you know, many of the things that happen in life, like someone gets sick, car breaks down, have to work late or whatever. You eliminate concerns about the weather. You know, is it snowing? Is it raining? Whatever the case may be. So uh, we certainly need to take and focus on early voting here. And I believe that based upon the conversations I've had, the meetings that I've been in, uh, we do get it. We do understand what needs to be done and we are going to take and make it happen. Now, Jason, uh, I wanted to make sure our listeners knew just what a great fighter you were. I mean, one of your big accomplishments was you were able to stop. You led the fight to stop Governor Tom Wolf's bridge tolling plan. Okay, that was something that he wanted to do here in, in toll the bridge over 79 in Bridgeville there you know, which would have impacted the folks in your district and, and many of the folks here in Allegheny County because it's such a widely used, you know, highway. And PennDOT came out and just announced that they were going to do that. And uh, thankfully, thanks to you and other folks who, who worked with you, like Senator Devlin Robinson, you guys were able to get that stopped. I want to thank you for all your hard work on doing that and recognize yeah, that. absolutely. I mean, look, I, I really believe that the that Governor Wolf and his administration, and mainly the PennDOT secretary, really overstepped their bounds on what they could do. And when I saw that, I just saw that as a blatant disregard. Uh, and eight of the nine toll bridges are in Republican districts. I mean, come on, if that didn't really you know, show you his entire hand there being punitive, I don't know what will. But I, I, the second that came out, I committed to fighting that because it was so unfair to the people that live in my district and beyond and the nearly 100,000 people who travel that, that road every single day just to do something 
that, in my opinion, did not need to be done. You know, you know, myself and Senator Robinson really joined forces on this. I particularly want to thank South Fayette Township because at the end of the day, I didn't have standing in court to sue. All I could do was try to move legislation, which we did, and we did get that done, too, so they couldn't mm-hmm. move on. Um, but we, we were able to appeal it through South Fayette Township with a, a group of real bipartisan uh, municipalities in surrounding area. But it was the South Fayette Township taxpayers who footed the bill of almost $100,000 taking that to court. You know, myself and Senator Robinson showed up that day in Commonwealth Court in Pittsburgh. The judges even noted that we were there. They knew how important this was to us and our communities. And I think it was maybe a month later we got the ruling uh, and PennDOT, you know, despite what they say, we won the case. Uh, they tried to make a deal with us, and we said, no way, not interested. It's dead. We're not moving on from this. You can take your tolling plan and go bury it in the backyard. But I will tell you the shadiness of when that all came out. I literally got a phone call a half hour before it went public, and they were telling me that the public supports this. It's like 70% of the people support the tolling of, of these bridges across the state. And I'm sitting there just like absolutely dumbfounded at who in the world were they polling? Because after it came out, I mean, almost I only had one person in my district tell me they wanted the toll there. One out of thousands of people. Right. So it was completely ridiculous from the beginning. I'm glad the judges in Commonwealth Court sided with us. And I'm, I'm glad people know that myself and uh, Senator Robinson really worked our butts off. It didn't just kill the, the toll in our area. It killed the tolls all over the state. So it was a win for everybody, not just for Allegheny County. Well, we appreciate your leadership. I wanted to make sure that our listeners knew about that. Hey, Jason, I know you got to go. I want to thank you for joining us here in this segment on The Elephant in the Room. Thank you, my friend. Have a great day. You too. Thank you, Sam. Folks, this is the end of our first segment here. This is Sam DeMarco on The Elephant in the Room on WJAS 1320 AM. The midterm elections are in the rearview mirror, and now it's time to start finding great school board candidates for 2023. Convince the right candidates to run using the Get Elected app for easy-to-understand voter data and analysis, canvassing tools, and more. Visit getelected.org and show them the path to victory. Get elected. Campaign with confidence. Folks, welcome back to The Elephant in the Room. This is Sam DeMarco, your host, and I'm joined here by our guest in the second segment, Guy Shiraki. Now, Guy, you may recognize the name, has recently run for Congress and had been a prospective candidate, had looked at running for governor here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. But Guy has served in the past as the president and the CEO of the Chester County Chamber of Business and Industry. And Guy was wrote an op-ed that I just saw in Broad and Liberty and I, I really, I was struck by it because it, to me, it's it's common sense. But with the Republican Party, you know, we, it would qualify as brilliance because it's something that we don't do. We don't do enough of. And, uh, you know, Guy, welcome to the show. Hi, Sam. Uh, thanks for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. Uh, and I want to say hello to uh, family and friends in Pittsburgh. As, as I remind everybody, uh, my mother-in-law is from uh, Braddock. The real Braddock, not the uh, U.S. Senator's Braddock. Uh, <laughs> and our oldest is a Pitt grad, so hail to Pitt. So well, there you go. Hey, on that we can agree, hail to Pitt. Now, Guy, when you and I first met, the, the first time we met, you, when you were looking at it potentially running for governor, we had a great meeting. We sat down, we talked, and I think we agreed on a, on a lot of things. But one of the big ones was that we both believed that when voters go to the polls and make the selection on election day or whether they're filling out a ballot and sending it in, that they do that with a sense of optimism or hope that somehow, some way, that decision that they're making is going to benefit their family or their you know, kids or grandkids in some way. It's a positive decision. And yet, 
to your point, the point of your op-ed, you know, Republicans spend too much time telling people what we're against and not enough time telling them what we stand for. So why don't you tell our listeners who haven't had the opportunity to read the article yet, and then I'll give you the opportunity to, to tell them how they can go and see this at Broad and Liberty. But tell them a little bit about your ideas and, and what you believe Republicans need to do if we're going to take and be successful at the ballot box in the future. Yeah, Sam, thanks for the opportunity to do that. Yeah, one of the reasons I felt called to run for office is, is I wanted to, obviously, like many candidates, speak out against the things that had been going wrong, but more importantly, show, show people what our path forward was, uh, what Republicans believe. And look, a lot of voters are very locked into the Democratic Party, and a lot of voters are locked into the Republican, but there's a whole bunch that really do pick and choose. And for those voters as well as loyal Republicans, it's important that we say this is what we're for and this is what we're going to do. This is how our community would be safer and more prosperous. This is how our schools would be better. This is how our economy would grow. This is how we would be energy independent. This is how America would be stronger. Look, I live in the real world. And and as I wrote in my column, uh, when I opened, you know, the opening two paragraphs of the column, it's sort of a summary of the last five or 10 years. Mm Mm-hmm. The Republicans have had to, we felt compelled to speak out against defunding the police, about an open southern border, about the lockdown, about the mask mandates, about the vaccine mandate, about the uh, removal of honors programs in schools, about the kids being locked out of schools, about the increasing amount of sex education and transgender education taking place in schools, uh, the fact that uh, certain big city prosecutors don't want to prosecute crime, the fact that parents are being dis- you know, keep quiet at school board meetings. I could go on and on. I mean, the reality is, I think an honest voter has to step back and say, a lot of issues, a lot of issues have come in front of us in the last five or 10 years, many of which are things that 10 or 20 years ago, we would have never thought were going to be part of the political conversation. So like, like when you're, you know, you're in an arcade and playing whack-a-mole, these things are all popping up and Republicans have been forced to say, no, 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 you know, we're against that. That's right. a bad idea. And I think unwittingly, what we what we didn't realize is that a whole bunch of voters just see us as the people saying no, we're, that somehow we're in favor of the status quo. And the reality is parents are always looking for ways to make sure their kids are being prepared for the future. People are concerned about the environment. They are concerned about the economy. They are concerned about how seniors are going to be taken care of. And so if, if nothing else, if we sort of step back, it comes down to this. It seems like the Democrats have lots of ideas for lots of problems, and the Republicans think all of their ideas are bad. And, and so then we have a debate. If you like the Democrats' ideas, vote for the Democrats. If you think the Democrats' ideas are bad, vote for the Republicans. And as we're seeing in a lot of communities, particularly in the suburbs, and you know whether you're in the, the North Hills or where I live in Chester County, uh, when that's the way the debate is framed, all too often we don't do very well. So it's time that we take some inventory and come back and say, this is what our party believes and how we would improve the environment, improve the economy, take care of seniors, improve our schools, make our city safer. The good news is we know what those things are. So, so now it's just a case of having to uh, make sure that we share those with voters as well and not keep them as a secret. No, I, I couldn't have said it better, Guy. Uh, we saw in this past election cycle, you know, uh, folks came out and used the Dobbs decision from the Pennsylvania, yeah. or excuse me, from the U.S. Supreme Court against all of our candidates, and they were basically uh, they took every candidate that we had and painted them as having the most extreme position, you know, on abortion, uh, taking in a position that our gubernatorial candidate had and trying to project that 
on everyone else that was running from Congress to state house to state Senate. At the same time, you know, our candidates were silent because their consultants were telling them, no, no, don't say anything about the issue. Just let it die. And people didn't know what they were really for, you know, and what they would have done if given the opportunity, if having elected. And, you know, I use that as an issue, but it's across the board. What are we doing in regards to crime? What are we doing in regards to the economy? What are we taking and doing or believing should be done in regards to energy independence, right? So, I mean, you're spot on. And, uh, you know, I'm hoping that our folks are listening. And by folks, I mean our consultants and our candidates. And, you know, because I, we have to go in not just this year, but in the next year, you know, with a positive agenda. And we have to not only have the agenda, but we have to make the case to the people of Pennsylvania as to how this is going to have a positive impact in their lives. Sure. And it's especially the case, Sam, in, in communities that aren't led by Republicans or where there aren't a lot of Republicans in, in swing communities, if you will, purple or communities mm-hmm. where people will vote Democrat or Republican. And in a lot of suburban communities where you're in essence, you're making a case. We're making a case as Republicans that we can do a better job. Well, if you think about it, it's hard to convince people that you can do a better job if you don't tell them what that would be. <laughs> Not enough to just say the other guys think and and think of you talked about the Dobbs decision and and just share it's you know we we could we could spend hours talking mm-hmm. about abortion but I just would share these two takeaways everyone knew the Dobbs case had gone before the Supreme Court everyone knew that the decision was going to be released by the Supreme Court in early July everybody knew that mm-hmm. everybody paying attention whether you whether you label yourself pro life or pro choice or somewhere in between you knew that. Within, within hours of the decision being released, there was a quote-unquote spontaneous rally, a spontaneous demonstration in front of the Supreme Court with thousands of people with professional placards and T-shirts right. condemning the decision and, and saying the decision was horrible and outrageous and what have you. And, and on the Republican side or, or the conservative side or the pro-life side, if you will, there was much consternation because we said, look at that. Look how made up, how fake. That's not spontaneous. They have signs and T-shirts. But the reality was they had signs and T-shirts because they knew the decision was going to happen any day, and they knew they had a message they wanted to share. Mm -hmm. And to your point, Sam, the response from pro-lifers, who at this point in our life are are disproportionately Republican, but there was no quote-unquote spontaneous rally. There was no press conference. There was no parade. There was no celebration. There were no op-eds. There were no people going on the radio and talking or television. We retreated. And again, the voters were left with this sort of big takeaway. Something big happened on abortion. The Democrats think it's bad, and the Democrats think it's going to hurt women, and Republicans did this to women. And our response was to say, you know, gas is $4, and that's what you should really care about. And so there was a disconnect. Gas really was $4. Gas really was expensive. But we were disconnected from that issue. And again, Democrats shared a vision. We either ignored their statements or we changed the subject. And voters held us accountable for it when we should have had a discussion about it. And that's very instructive of the way the last five or six years have gone. There are these gut-wrenching issues. Democrats uh, take a, a position a position that, frankly, is often wrong or extreme. Yes. But we, we simply condemn it, and voters say, you know, again, we make it a referendum. Do you like the Democrats' ideas, or do you agree with us that their ideas are bad? 
And all too often we lose that debate, particularly in swing districts. No, I, you know, you're absolutely right. And I think that's part of the problem that we as Republicans are facing here in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, in the Collar counties surrounding Philadelphia, as well as suburban counties here in like Allegheny County. Okay. When you're dealing with a more educated and affluent population demographic there, they're looking for solutions to problems, you know, and we need, we need to take and present those. Yeah. And in a state like Pennsylvania, I mean, the, the conversation we could, we could have in almost any, you know, American Legion hall or or chamber of commerce meeting would, would be very straightforward. In most cases, when it came to, comes to this issue, it is the democratic party that wants a national law. It's the Democratic Party that would like a national law that would pretty much allow abortion up to the moment of delivery. The Republicans, by and large, would prefer that this be discussed state by state so that neither California or Mississippi or Congress can tell us what to do here in Pennsylvania. And not only do Republicans think those decisions should be made in each state, but in each community, but that there should be some limitation. Most of the world has some limitation, has some regulation. Now, you or I might disagree with that limitation. Your listeners might disagree. But most people don't like the idea that there would be an abortion at the, up to the moment of delivery unless the mom's life was in danger. She was going to be, uh, you know, irreparably harmed. Mm-hmm. But we left it as Democrats chanting, Republicans are going to hurt women. Republicans are going to eliminate all abortions. And we walked away. Look, but it's time and time again. It, it, it's time and time again, uh, you know, take take the issues of energy and the environment. I mean, the Democratic Party has linked the two of them together. They have all sorts of ideas, not the least of which is they don't like pipelines. They don't like fossil fuels. They don't like things uh, being transported by pipeline. Well, as tragically, we were all reminded days ago, moving chemicals, moving fuel, by train presents problems. And unfortunately, folks in Ohio and Western Pennsylvania are learning that. Mm-hmm. Now, again, the answer is not for us to say this tragedy is not Joe Biden's fault any more than it's President Trump's fault. But the point is, one of the reasons that we need state-of-the-art, safe pipelines to move our energy and to move chemicals is to make it safer for our communities. So we do have a plan to make us energy independent. We do have plans to make our economy grow, and we do have plans that protect the environment. And it's not by hauling, you know, thousands and thousands of gallons of fuels or chemicals by rail cars. There's a time and place for rail cars, but there's a time and a place where it would be much safer to do it otherwise. But we haven't explained that so the voters don't know there's a difference. When it comes to education, when it comes to a whole host of things. Look, you and I know because because we get to meet candidates. We have a whole bunch of good candidates, good elected officials that have a lot of great ideas on a whole variety of things, from the environment, crime, safety, families, the elderly. But we don't highlight that enough. Instead, uh, we're drawn into an era where we you know, speak out against the horrors of the other side. And right now, I hope that our friends in the Republican Party are seeing that that strategy brings us a Democratic president, a Democratic governor, two Democratic senators, a Democratic state house, and a lot of Democratic elected officials in other offices. So I hope that for no other reason, we understand the strategy failed. But I hope we also understand that we have good ideas and we do have thoughts on these things. They don't involve big government plans. They don't involve giant uh, 
gobs of money being spent, but we do have plans and we ought to be proud of them and share them and have a debate on ideas, not just simply whether the, the other guy's ideas stink. No, you're absolutely right. I, you know, I'll use an example here, tax cuts. You know, Republicans are traditionally have been for tax cuts, okay? And we allow the left to say, well, that's just because we, we want wealthy people to be able to be, keep more of their own money. And when the answer is no, we understand two things. One, we want everybody to be able to keep more of their hard-earned dollars to spend as they see fit on their families and, and things of that nature. But also, we understand the dynamic effect it has by incentivizing people to take and make more risks and to work harder, thereby generating more revenue. And when you look at, when I look at all the tax cuts, and I'll go back to Kelvin Coolidge. When you look at tax cuts under Coolidge, you look at them under Kennedy, you look at them under Bush or Reagan, you look at them under Bush, you look at them recently under Trump. In all those cases, revenues to the federal government all grew, okay? It was the spending that increased at an even higher rate, that caused these problems. But we don't explain that to people. We just say, well, we're for tax cuts. Okay. Right. Yeah. No, and you're right. Look, and, and and in fairness, sometimes playing offense is harder because you have to explain the issues. And, and again, not to be sort of self-serving, but Republicans tend to be more guarded and cautious uh, because, you know, we try to see ourselves as being more responsible. When you're, when you're a progressive Democrat, you just have, you know, at times grandiose ideas. And you just say, you know, we should have free health care and, you, you know, details to follow. Right. Everybody should have free health care, details to follow. Well, how would that get paid for? Oh, uh, there's plenty of money out there. Okay, well, how would that work? Uh, lots of European countries have it. Right. And you say these platitudes. And again, if you're a mom and your daughter has some horrible, uh, horrible disease or, or incredibly expensive disease to be cared for. Again, what you hear is a Democratic politician talking to mom saying, don't worry, we're going to take care of your daughter. And we're left saying socialized medicine's expensive, it's bureaucratic. Same thing about tax cuts. <clears throat> See, we get caught in this tax cuts, and, and you, you're exactly right, Sam. People say, well, you want tax cuts because you want rich people to make more money. And I would say, rich people don't need me to go to bat for them. Rich people <laughs> take care of themselves. Yep. What, what, when, when folks like you and I <clears throat> talk about keeping taxes down or even cutting them, what we're talking about is the people that we see every day, the people who run bakeries and restaurants, the people where you go to get your car repaired, the folks that come to repair your heater, your washer, and your dryer, those small businesses that have two, three, four, 14 employees, every dollar you take out of their pocket, every dollar you take out of their business, you make them more susceptible to being outgunned by a bigger business. You make it that much harder for them to hire the next person. Small businesses are not making gobs of money and hiding it away you know, back in the back room and, and, and uh, socking it away and having, you know, uh, rolling their hands in the, in the cash. What they're doing is trying to keep their business viable against chains, against bigger stores. What they're trying to do is keep their business running well because they're on the front lines. They're very susceptible to customers. They see their customers. They talk to their customers every day. And that's what we should be explaining to people. We're looking out for small business. We're looking out for neighborhood businesses. We're looking out for local businesses that drive our economy, and we want to keep them thriving. And everything, every time the government, every time a politician says that he or she wants to spend money on something, the question should be: Is are you going? To, do you? Does that justify taking another dollar 
from the family that owns the neighborhood bakery. Does that idea justify taking more money away from the people who come and repair your heater? That's the question. And we're on the side of saying we should try and let the small business in our community, we should try and let the senior citizen keep every dollar that they have to take care of themselves and their business because we want them to grow and be and to be able to take care of themselves. That's the debate. But when we get it caught into, you know, 22% tax rate versus 23% tax rate, you're going to help the rich. We lose. Or again, they want to raise money to do something that's good. We say that's too expensive. And we're back. We're saying we're back in that trap. Well, when you started... I'm sorry. No, that's what I say. We get caught in that trap. They they identify a problem. They offer a solution, and we say it's a bad solution or too expensive. And meanwhile, the audience is listening saying, but, but that mom's got a girl who's really sick who's going to help her. You guys don't want to help her. See, that's when you, when you started those comments, when you started those comments, you know, all I could see, I was picturing Bernie Sanders out there talking about Medicare for all. Say, we're the wealthiest country on the face of the earth. It's a shame we're not doing this. You know, not realizing or being honest with folks that we're over a hundred and some trillion dollars in debt. Okay. You know, when you count our requirements here for social security and Medicare, and you count the $31 trillion we have in public debt, we're like $110 trillion in debt or more. Right. Right. So somebody has to say, you can't afford it. Where's it going to come from? Right. And these folks you know, Republicans tend to be much more guarded because we want to dot our I's and cross our T's, make sure our facts are correct, right? The left will just say anything. Well, we'll take it off the billionaires. You could take every dollar, every billionaire in this country has, and it's not enough to take and eliminate the deficit for this year, let alone pay for things like that, you know, going forward. I mean, it really is a, uh, it, it really is a mess and uh, yeah. how they present and, and- this. No, you're, you're, look, you're exactly right. And again, it's the, the, the challenge that we have is that when they come up with the next grandiose plan to fix X, Y, or Z, and it sort of details the follow, we're the folks that come in afterwards and clean up and say, hey, look, that's really impractical. It costs too much and this, that, and the other thing. Whereas, you know, as opposed to saying, this is the challenge and here's how we fix it. Look, take it, take as an example, you know, I hope many of your listeners know, but there's been a lot of talk it's hard anymore because any any given moment in the news we're, we're drawn into Ukraine or the chemical accident or balloons or whatever it may be. But folks may recall in the last few weeks there was a major court case here in Pennsylvania and, and a Commonwealth Court judge issued a ruling and she basically said the way we fund public education in Pennsylvania is unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. We're not meeting our constitutional obligation. Well, immediately the response from, from left-wing folks was, See, we told you we need more money. <laughs> and my response was, read what she said. Read what the judge said. What she said is there are children who aren't being given an opportunity to succeed. So instead of attacking the judge for pointing out, frankly, what's obvious, and instead of debating the left-wing politicians who want to spend more money, say, we care about those kids, too. In fact, I'll argue we care more about those kids than you do because the issue isn't whether we spend 17000 19000 21000 or 28000 The question is, are those children being sent to a school where they learn how to read and write and do math and science and critically think and write a paragraph? Mm-hmm. That's the question. So what the answer is to solve this problem of closing the gap, of leaving no child behind, 
is, is school choice. It's empowering parents. It's letting parents decide what school's best. It's letting parents pick the school, holding the schools accountable and moving. So again, I share that just an example to say, this is where we should play offense. We don't have to yell about the judge. We don't have to tell the folks that Democrats just want to spend money. Most voters understand that. Democrats identify a problem. They want to spend money, create an agency, and that's how everything will be taken care of. We know those ideas are flawed. But again, simply saying that their ideas are flawed and expensive, we're probably going to lose because the issue is there are kids falling behind, and, and we know that. So that's where we should go on offense and say, you're right. There are kids in Pittsburgh that are falling behind. There are kids in Wilkinsburg falling behind. There are kids in Philadelphia and in Reading that are falling behind. Right. But the answer is not pumping more money in. It's giving more power to the parents because there are poor kids all over Pittsburgh. There are poor kids all over Pennsylvania. Some of them go to schools that work and some of them don't. There are kids that grow up in single parent families all over Pennsylvania. There are kids where English isn't the primary language at home all over in Pennsylvania. There are kids who have educational challenges and dyslexia. They're all over Pennsylvania. But the reality is many of them go to schools where they're able to succeed and thrive. Some of them go to schools that don't help them succeed, that hold them back, that fail them. It's not about dumping more money into the bad schools. It's about getting those kids to the schools that work. We're on the side of wanting the kids to be able to go to schools that work. We don't want to leave those kids behind. In fact, we're fighting tooth and nail to get them an opportunity to succeed because we know the best thing we can do for a nine-year-old young girl or young boy is get them into a school that works because then we change her whole trajectory. Mm -hmm. Then she has an ability to learn and go to school and get a job and raise herself and help take care of her family. That's an entirely different trajectory that if we fail her and she can't read and she can't find a job, then she's dependent on us forever and we've failed her and then everybody has to take care of her. And nobody should want that. So these are these are challenges where we need to go on offense because we truly do want to help people. But you and I want to help people by giving them the tools so they can succeed for themselves rather than creating a new program for where they're dependent. That's why I think if we go to the voters and say, we do have a lot of plans and we have plans about raising the economy and giving everybody opportunity and keeping us protected, our ideas will win. We should be proud of them and not merely get caught in the trap of explaining why the other guy's ideas stink, which they do, but that's not a winning argument. No, listen, Guy, you are absolutely right. And I saw the same thing when I saw that decision uh, released by Judge Jubilee and that she didn't say that they had to give more money to these folks, but, you know, they had to provide funding so that these kids could get a good education. And, and I think the left may rue the day she made that decision because I believe, as you do, that this should open up the door for school choice. Hey, it has been fascinating talking to you. Unfortunately, we're up against the gun here in regards to time. I would like to invite you back for an entire show because one segment is just not enough. I mean, the ideas are fascinating. The things that you're putting out there, Guy, are what I believe the Republican Party needs to do. Can we get you back for an entire show here? I'd be happy to. I'd be happy to because I think it's important. This is an important discussion. It's not about my ideas. It's about inviting all Republicans to get involved and understand we got to change the mindset. And that is we have a lot of good ideas and we better start sharing them with voters so we can win, so we can actually do them. Well, listen, we're gonna, I'm going to have John reach out to you and try to get you scheduled. If we can get you next week, that would be great. But I want to get you for the entire show. All right, Guy, thank you for joining us today. 
Thanks so much, Sam. I look forward to continuing the conversation and look forward to seeing you next time in Pittsburgh. You got it, folks. Folks, you heard from Guy Shiraki here, former president and CEO of the Chester County Chamber of Business and Industry. And really, uh, you know, I, I don't want to call him a visionary here, but somebody that understands what Republicans need to do if we're going to be successful at the ballot box. This is Sam DeMarco signing off, the elephant in the room. Until next week, WJAS 1320 AM.